For me, fashion is a verb. So it's to fashion. My name's Claire Press, and I'm Vogue Australia's sustainability editor. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis. I just think it's curiosity at the core of it. Like, I just really want to know the answer to things. You talk about revolution in 68. No, we make the revolution before. Can we just go back to making really beautiful clothes with a soul and minimize the waste and think a little before we, we make things and bring back the value? Provided you wake up every morning and you're aware of the fact that your wardrobe is in the fashion supply chain, then you're a fashion decision maker. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. Last series, I recorded a show in the House of Lords with Baroness Lola Young. It's on modern slavery and it's episode number 53 if you want to check it out. And now I've ticked the House of Commons off my podcast recording bucket list, or more accurately, Portcullis House, which is just across the road and it's where about 200 British MPs have their offices. This week's guest is Mary Cray, the Labour MP for Wakefield and the fabulous, bold and brilliant chair of the UK Parliament's Environmental Audit Committee. Now, this is not just relevant in the UK because the EAC's report, Fixing Fashion, made headlines globally when it was published this year. It was looking into the environmental impact of the fashion industry and it heard submissions in person from loads of people who've featured on this podcast already, including designers like Christopher Rayburn, supply chain experts like Claire Bergkamp from Stella McCartney. That is such a good episode, by the way. You should definitely go back and revisit that one. It's episode 73. Academics like Dillis Williams and activists like my good mate Ursula de Castro. There were also submissions from Common Objective and Fashion Roundtable and EcoAge about everything from worker exploitation to water pollution and, of course, overconsumption and waste. The whole process took many months and the reason it made all the headlines is it was groundbreaking for a parliamentary committee to address fashion's impacts. Now, they made a bunch of recommendations, including a one penny tax on garments to be put back on the brands and that was to pay for better clothing collection and sorting, so for recycling. Now, what happened? Well, the British government rejected all 18 of the recommendations but Mary Cray is not giving up. This interview was conducted the day that the EAC released its latest report. This one's called Our Planet, Our Health, and it highlights the extent that climate change could affect health and well-being. So it was a big day. Parliament was also in the middle of Boris Johnson's illegal shutdown. There's all this talk of elections and, of course, the ongoing Brexit debacle. I mean, just so much craziness. So I was really surprised and grateful that Mary didn't cancel our meeting, if only just to focus on the big media opportunities around the new reports. But it just goes to show how rad she is. She is a person of integrity who sticks to her word and who is in politics to make a positive difference. If only there were more people like her in positions of power. Anyway, we discuss the power of the shopping detox, how Brits got to the point where they're consuming and disposing of literally twice as many clothes as the Italians and the Germans, and just what we should be doing about it. We also go into the new planetary health reports. And if you want to check out the show notes on clairepress.com, there's a link to download that and read it in full. 
The answer, cycling, by the way. <laughs> cycling could fix everything, reckons Mary, who is in fact a keen cyclist herself. I am very excited to have this insider access and share it with you. Let me know if you're outside of the UK, if your governments at the local or the national level are looking into fashion. And if not, why not? Have a think about how citizens can get involved, where governments are dropping the ball on this and other sustainability issues. How can citizens pressure them to take action? One of the ways that I get involved is through this thing called Fashion Roundtable in the UK. I'm part of their team. You can find out about their important policy work and all the other stuff that they do at www.fashionroundtable.co.uk. And maybe you can get involved. It's always good to be a joiner. And if there's nothing like that where you are, maybe you can start your own. I'm going to leave you with that word citizen, because I just think it's such a powerful one. The concept goes back to the ancient Greeks, where it was a bit dodgy because it excluded most people, including women, like all of them. But today it's a very different matter. So what does it mean to be a good citizen in 2019 or 2020? I think it implies freedom, but with responsibilities, <laughs> like Spider-Man. Oh, that just occurred to me. Okay, fine. But let's have a think about what ours might be wherever we may live, particularly when it comes to good stewardship of the environment and looking after each other. Food for thought. Talking of which, segue alert, I'm working on a lovely upcoming episode all about food. So look out for that one in two weeks. But before that, oh my God, so excited. Next week is our hundredth episode. Oh my goodness, I can't believe we got there. I'm so grateful to you, dear listener, for building this momentum. We've had hundreds of thousands of downloads and consistently been in the top 10 Apple podcasts in the fashion and beauty category in the UK, in Australia, in Denmark, Germany, France, Ireland, the US. And actually this week, I just noticed Korea. So there you are. It's just amazing. I am so grateful to you all for coming along for the ride with me. Now, our special guest next week will be Sinead Burke. So great and so much to look forward to. We should have a party. Don't forget to hit subscribe wherever you listen to this podcast and follow me on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Mrs. Press. Mary, welcome to the Wardrobe Crisis podcast. I'm so excited and delighted that you made time to squeeze this into your ridiculously busy schedule. That's my pleasure. It's great to see you. Can we start just by setting the scene? Where exactly are we? We are in my office in Portcullis House, which is a building full of parliamentary offices. From my window, you can see Westminster Bridge, you can see St Thomas's Hospital and the glorious River Thames. This is the sort of nice office you get when you've been around and been a loyal servant of the party and the nation. Now, actually... I have also recorded in the House of Lords across the street. We did a show with Baroness Lola Young of Hornsey all about modern slavery. And we'll share a link so you can listen back to that one if you missed it. But Lola is the current chair of the APPG on ethics and sustainability in fashion. And basically, you two are like the rock stars of sustainable fashion in Westminster. <laughs> well, I'm wearing my jeans today. So, um, yeah, we're not actually sitting because the Prime Minister in his wisdom said we're not allowed to sit for the next few weeks. So this has given me an opportunity to wear my rather nice, actually, you can admire them. I don't, they're some American jeans. 
And my hairdresser had a pair of these jeans. I don't know what they are. And they are the most comfy thing. And of course, I ride my bike in. So it's great to have something with a high level of elastane in it. So yeah, I've never thought of myself as a rock star. And I'm definitely not. But I'll have to tell my son that because he's 17. And he... Um, He'd be proud. He, he, well, he plays electric guitar. I think he's the guy in our family who thinks that he's going to be the real rock star. Before we get into the serious questions around the work that you do, I just want to ask you, because before we pressed record, I asked you about what you wearing and we both said we're on a bit of a shopping detox or trying to prove a point shopping Shopping diet diet. it's hard well when we did this inquiry I just suddenly realized that over the last sort of five to ten years I'd spent more of my money online more of it late at night um sort of creeping up and you don't realize you're getting more and more and suddenly not going into shops not feeling the things I love clothes I was brought up with a mum who taught me how to knit a teacher in primary school who taught me how to embroider so I love the quality of them I love the making of them and I love wearing them and then you recognize that disconnect and then I just thought you know what I'm buying too much I don't really wear half this stuff there's stuff in my wardrobe that I loved 10 years ago it's a bit big for me now it's a bit small for me now and I've just started bagging it all up getting it out friends and families charity shop and just getting rid of it and then with sort of fast fashion I thought oh actually I don't really do these kind of I don't go online and you're not you, binging on pretty little no, things. No, 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 I'm not. They're, and also, look, it's all just a bit too short for me. When you get to when you get to 51, it's not. I'm not their target audience. But John Lewis, oh yes, we could spend quite a lot of time there. And I went in last September with one of their personal shoppers, and I did go well out of my comfort zone. For listeners who don't know what we're talking about, John Lewis is a sort of the dream establishment, fabulous <laughs> British department store. Well, it's got lots of different designers in and they have their own makes and the quality is fantastic but I just thought actually the high street is dying and this is real people's jobs that are disappearing and once I realized the kind of carbon and planetary impact of fashion I was like oh I have to really sort of narrow this down now this is not a guilt-free purchase anymore so basically the last thing I bought was a pink suit in May. And just just take a moment to say that MP yeah. is in pink suit. Oh, it's quite good. It was one of those, you know, when people say to you, that's a brave choice. And then when I put, when I got it, <laughs> I did get it online because they, they, I went to the shop and they're like, no, we don't have the pink one here. Don't, don't be ridiculous. And uh, so I bought it. I was like, I love this. And it's because I saw Nancy Pelosi in a pink suit. And I'm like, if Nancy can rock right? it. Yeah. I was like, she's I don't know, 75 or something. I was like, well, Nancy can wear a pink suit. I think I can. And then I got it home and I was like, oh, I'm not sure. And I had to kind of try it on at least three times before I finally dared to wear it. And now it's like, I'm comfortable with it, but it it took a bit of... You like bright. Last time I saw you, you were wearing a bright orange jacket and right now you're in pink satin. (laughs) That's right. Well, it's good for telly. So if you're going on TV, you need something that is just a little bit poppy and bright. And it's very easy to get into a kind of school uniform here with blacks, greys and browns. Okay, I want to just stick on pink. But to get back to the Fixing Fashion reports, you did note that that is probably or maybe definitely the first time there has been a parliamentary report with a pink frock on the front of it yeah we were very pleased about that and the battles I had to go through to get that pink frock on and we couldn't show the model's face I was like surely the model be thrilled to be on a parliamentary report but so what is fixing fashion and actually let me ask you first of all you are the chair of the environmental audit committee which is 
We're the committee that scrutinises what the government does on the environment. So we look at what government departments do, because the government is the biggest purchaser of goods and services in the country. But we also look at government policies. So we're a bit like the Public Accounts Committee. If you remember my colleague Margaret Hodge getting Google and Amazon in and saying, why don't you pay your taxes? We can basically call anybody in the country, and we've called people from outside the country, from all across Europe and the world, to come and give us evidence on policy towards climate change, sustainability, sustainable living. And we've done reports on subjects as obscure as soil health. And I was... Well, my je- I was absolutely la- vital now. I'm uh, well, now obsessed with soil. Exactly. Well, I, I was very reluctant on soil. I thought this would be a bit worthy and earnest. But my joke about soil is we've got to stop treating it like dirt. Boom, um, boom. <laughs> boom. But this is also about how we treat contaminated land in our cities, because if we want to build on brownfield, we've got to clean up all the toxic chemicals just done a big report on toxic chemicals, absolute eye-opener about flame retardants and the way that they're kind of poured into our clothes, our kids' pyjamas, our baby cots, incredible stuff here in the UK. And we've done stuff on food poverty and food security. So the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, we're really trying to work out, is government policy going to help us meet those goals in this country in 2030 and globally 2030 as well? And sadly, the answer all too often is, Mm, not trying hard enough just yet. So at what point did you decide that fashion was going to be under the microscope? Well, we'd done a big report into single-use plastic, so plastic bottles and single-use coffee cups, and that really woke up the country. It did. To I the mean, fact that, you know, there's no such place as a way. These things aren't recyclable. They're not being collected in. We've got a real debate going on, and I realise environment is too abstract. You have to make it tangible, and everybody has to wear clothes. Thank God. Especially in this case. I always say that at a talk. I go, if you think this is not for you, let me ask you this. Are you a nudist? Maybe on the weekend, not today. Maybe between the hours of midnight and eight o'clock. But this idea that fashion can be a conduit for conversation or it can spark conversation and get people thinking about some of the tougher stuff around the environment. Exactly. Tangibility. And the Ellen MacArthur report had done some of the work. So what we were trying to do is say, what can government do about it? What are the big brands doing about it? who's good, bad. There's no measurement. There's a lot of chat, a lot of greenwash, everyone's saying what they're doing. And I suppose what I wanted to do is just, I like to start with a blank sheet of paper and say, come on in and let's go at it, you know, head down and pull for the finish line. And so we just get everything there. And then at the end, we sort of filter, select, implement and working with my brilliant committee staff and my brilliant committee colleagues from across all parties, we come together and say, this is what we think. This is our best estimate. It's not perfect. We're human. We're not academics. We're not experts. But this is what the ordinary thinking person needs to think about this issue. But you are calling in the experts. I want to zero in on this report. We talked about it being the first parliamentary report with a pink frock on the front. It's called Fixing Fashion. Now, I'm based in Sydney, although I'm obviously British. I think all over the world, this report put sustainable fashion front and centre of the conversation. When you mentioned before that the plastics report got people in Britain really kind of galvanised around this issue. I mean, I was in Australia when the announcement came that you were starting the work on the report. And I just thought, this is groundbreaking. When do governments wade into this space? Well, we're not the government, but what we've done is set out a blueprint about what we think fashion needs to do. So first of all, if we carry on on our current path, the fashion industry is going to consume a quarter of the world's carbon budget by 2050. And that's absolutely huge. And 
like I say, I love fashion, but our insatiable desire for more, the kind of psychological kicks that we get from going in and buying a ton of stuff and getting it all home, doesn't last that long. And, you know, I'm interested in the kind of psychological impacts as well. We overproduce clothes, we underuse clothes. And if you think about the wartime generation, they had one suit, they got it out on a Sunday, they put it away. Sometimes they didn't even get it out on a Sunday. You might wear a hat to a wedding, but it was very plain, very kind of you utilitarian and here we buy in the UK more clothes than any other country in Europe two suitcases per person the um, the mail yeah exactly it's 27 kilos a year so if you think about how much luggage you can bring on a flight and the guys on the committee were like well I, I don't buy I buy one thing I buy some underwear you know so it's like if the guys are only buying five kilos that means some people are buying 50 kilos interestingly the stats are similar in australia australians consume on average per capita 27 kilos of clothing and textiles a year second only to north americans obviously on a par with britain's too but guess how much we turf out oh 23 kilos yeah of that 27 so i'm not sure what the stat is for britain but australia is certainly not best practice oh gosh that isn't and where does it all go where does it no such places away so we do get rid of about a million tons a year And that's mind-boggling, the volume of clothes um, that we're getting rid of. And if you think about the Italians, I lived in Italy for a year, many many years ago. It was so nice. But, you know, they'd go out. Where, 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 though? I was in Rome. I was teaching English language there. And you looked at the Italians, they'd go out in the evenings, they'd wear their clothes to work, and they'd come home, they'd get into their jammies, and they'd hang up their clothes really religiously. And they'd be walking up and down their little town high streets, looking at, oh, what's new from Uncle Max and Auntie Mara, as my... One of my students used to say it's from Uncle Max and Auntie Mara. And um, they'd save up and they'd buy it and they'd treasure their clothes and they'd buy these sort of timeless pieces. And you look at what we do, which is, oh, I'm going to a wedding. Oh, I'm going to a festival. Oh, I need something to paint the house in. Oh, I need something for the garden. Oh, I'm bored and it's my lunch hour. Yeah. Oh, let's have some pink boots this week. And it's like, oh, they look a bit crap now, don't they? So, oh, there's nothing I can really wear them with. So you look at the Italians, 15 kilos. It's like, well. Oh, I didn't know. Yeah. Half what we buy. Yeah. It's like, I'm sorry, people. So the average piece of clothing is worn seven times in the UK. Shocker. We throw 11 million items of clothing into the bin every year. So that's about 140 million pounds worth. And a third of a million tons are going to landfill or incineration. So we're digging a great big hole in the ground, chucking the stuff in or burning it. I mentioned experts before. Can you give us some examples of people that you invited to contribute to the report? Some of them have been on this podcast and we'll share some links to our friends Ursula de Castro and Dillis Williams. Who else did you have? Well, we had Ursula because I'd worked with her for the last five years hosting Fashion Revolution's annual Rana Plaza conference in Parliament. So I knew about the social costs of fashion. And I said to her, look, we're going to take it into sustainability because this MacArthur Foundation reports out and I think we need to get to the bottom of this. And so it's been a kind of wonderful education learning circle for all of us. We had the big brands and we had the people seen as the leaders. So Marks and Spencer's paradoxically Primark, who were caught up in the Rana Plaza disaster and who had quite a good story to tell about their sustainability piece. And then what we would call the laggards. So I like that word. It seems to be rather kind. Yes, perhaps. (laughs) So we had Boohoo and Misguided and some of the other companies that, let's just say, are not at the forefront of this. They're small companies, but they are growing. And some of them are now taking over high street shops as well. I think Uh, Boohoo has just bought a couple of British 
British chains that escape my mind at the moment. But ASOS was another one that had actually done quite a lot and were trying to get down to their, not just their sort of tier one suppliers, but their tier two, three, right back to the farm. And really we have enough technology with blockchain to be able to chase this fibre back to the field. And my question to the experts was, if you can tell me what the pigs in my sausages had for their breakfast, because Marks and Spencer's, you know, says it has to be this lupin seed diet to reduce the gas that's coming out of them. Why can't you tell me what your workers are paid and where the cotton was grown? And why do brands so often say, well, I'm sorry, it's not, we don't own the factory, so we can't really know. And it's very complicated. Yes. And it's convenient, isn't it? Because the longer the supply chain, the more blind eyes can be turned and the more exploitation that can happen as you go down that supply chain. So you say, yeah, my tier two supplier, I've checked his books, he's paying his wages. And then what you don't see is that half of the work is going out of the factory at night, home to families. There might be girls, underage, children who should be at school sewing on those sequins. And it's that move towards very highly embroidered, handiworked sequins and studded and bleached and distressed denim that is where a lot of the kind of environmental and social problems come in. So we did work. We also got the anti-slavery campaigners in here to give us evidence and talking to revenue and customs because if taxes are being avoided globally, they're also being avoided locally as well. Can I just ask you to share just briefly about the process? Because I watched, for example, footage of you grilling some of these people (laughs) in person. You obviously also called for submissions. How do you go about doing this work? Well, with a parliamentary inquiry, we put it on our webpage. And if it's an exciting topic, as fashion was, we get hundreds of uh, submissions from all around the world. And it was genuinely fascinating. What also... More than soil. (laughs) Well, you know, not everyone's an expert on soil, but everybody wears clothes. So that was the difference. But we had some great people doing some amazing things and some new startups who were like, we're trying to do this, but nobody's interested. And so you would invite them in to tell you in person where possible? So we would look at who we thought we could have an interesting conversation with and who we wanted to get more out of them. So clearly we wanted to get more from the brands. We talked to the academics who are researching in this area. So we say only write us two pages and they're like, Oh my God, it's my PhD. You know, I've written 100,000 words on this and you want two sides of A4. So, you know, fair dues. We had the academics in, we had some of the innovators in, the textile innovators. So all of that was really good. I went on a visit to the Huddersfield, which is very close to me in Wakefield, the Textile Centre of Excellence. Fantastic history around Wakefield, my constituency, with the wool and the carpet and the bedding industry, the so-called heavy woolen industry. We went into the Textile Centre of Excellence and saw a machine that was able to coat cloth at 60 metres a minute, which is the kind of industry standard, through chemical coating, antibacterial coating, waterproof coating, by passing it under a laser beam and then having a plasma beam interfering with it to put the properties on it. And this, in Uddersfield? In, in Uddersfield. You're right, lass. I got to say, it was excellent. It was ill, you more bad that. And, um, no, but good for us having this this technology in Britain and up but north it's being, that we ignore. Huh? Exactly, but it's being spun out, you know, the patent and all of the fundraising is going to be happening in America. So it's like we've got this genius creativity in our country and yet the kind of brokerage between making those innovations like the new patented norm in factories across the world. We can take electricity, chemicals, toxins and water pollution out 
of treatment processes for fabrics. And, you know, that's the chemicals that are next to our skin and our skin is absorbing these chemicals. So why wouldn't we do that? It's good for the planet. It's good for us. It's cheaper in the long run. And yet we're not able to do it here in this country. So there were some great moments and we had some very, very interesting evidence that came to me personally as the chair of the committee. So what you always get is people who say, I am in the industry. I know where all the bodies are buried. I cannot tell you because my job is, you know, working with these big companies, but here's where you need to go looking. So we had some interesting sort of off piece and some sustainability managers coming to us saying, I have inspected the factories. I have seen the dye flowing into the rivers and my bosses weren't interested in what I found. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask you what was the most surprising thing that you learned, but you've already shared some mind boggling things. Anything else? The million tonnes a year. Mm. The idea that we grow cotton, which is a thirsty crop, you know, this is drinking water and it is, we are wearing the fresh water supply of the Asian subcontinent. Well, uh, there was a terrible stat, wasn't there, from the report that was something like the cotton in one pair of jeans uses more water than a person drinks in two years. Yeah, and if you think about the water stress that is coming over the next 10 or 20 years, the global south, which is going to struggle to grow its own food, cotton is going to be a luxury fabric in 10 years from now. I mean... Regular listeners of this podcast will know that I pretty much say this every week, but it is demented to put all of these resources, creative and finite and natural and otherwise, into making all this stuff to throw away. It's completely bananas. That's right. And I think there's a distancing of young people these days from making and mending. And one of our fashion academics said, you know, I'm teaching fashion in Leeds. One of my students said, oh, I've got to go and get a new coat because um, button's fallen off. And as someone who just, and so actually I did, I sat both my son and my daughter down. My son came down in the middle of the fashion inquiries like, oh, mum, I've, you know, good, like ripping my trouser seams. I'm like, you're doing engineering. Right. Well, here's a little bit of textile engineering. We're going (laughs) to do a needle and thread. I'm going to sit at the table and I'm going to show you backstitch. And he repaired it. He was like, oh, that's quite good, you know. And it was like, <laughs> oh, we had a whole had a whole conversation uh, with my teenage son. And yeah, sewing on buttons, understanding that somebody has to make this stuff, and it's not that easy to do. I think is really good. I just made my daughter sew on all the labels for her school uniform, and she's like, and you know, the huge big stitches. And then it's like, you're gonna have to do that again because it's gonna scrape against the back of your neck. And it's like, oh, I can't just do it any old how. You know, understanding when you see something that's really really neat. That is an absolute work of art. And I took her around a charity shop and there was this great, beautiful kind of cream cashmere coat. And it was a shop in Montana that had done it. And you think about the Montana winters in America and how cold and icy they are. And inside it, it was like hand finished, hand stitched with the lining in. And there was a label in it said made by unionized workforce, the Garment Union of America. And I thought, my God, in the 60s and 50s, there were people stitching this stuff in by hand and here I am 50 years 60 years later this coat is a wonder I'm glad you brought that up because we're recording this on the final day of London Fashion Week but it's also and perhaps more importantly for this conversation second hand September as deemed by Oxfam Mm. well I went to their fashion show in February it was very 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 exciting I've never been it's Bay Garnet she's coming on the podcast next series is she well I was just she's a stylist but yeah it was brilliant and to see all those wonderful reworked leather jackets and I'd been to the Oxfam waste saver site up in Batley 
up near us. Um, Do you know you're six teaching miles. me? It's an education. I need to go back up north and see what's being done. Spend half a day what with Waste it? Saver. So basically, Oxfam has quantities of this you know probably thousands of tons of this stuff coming through their shops and warehouses they keep it there for a couple of weeks but just like ordinary shops they have their regular shoppers and they don't want to see the same old same old so when it's been on for a certain amount of time it goes up to batley heavy woolen industry six miles from wakefield all the best places are and they have <laughs> all the best places are six miles they from are wakefield. leeds batley <laughs> huddersfield i'm telling you i'm not wrong and um we had this incredible afternoon where they have this huge conveyor belt and the tiny little hand knitted baby clothes that had been worn once and washed possibly not even once from loving grannies i was like i'm having that i'm having but that so they hand sorting it they're hand sorting it but they're getting it into all like 20 different grades of fabric so what they do is they pull out all the stuff that can go to festivals all of the cut off shorts all of the massive wellies all of the burberry max tons of burberry max there yeah some odd little stain the odd little thing missing but they go to windsor horse trials and they have an oxfam stall there so a better class of oxfam shopper so they're segmenting it to what they're incredible different markets then they have the jeans that go off to Pakistan to be recycled they have all sorts of they call it jazzy I was like that's quite an exciting name for hideous amounts of acrylic jumpers and that just gets sort of reworked down some of it goes into the mattress industry some of it goes into carpets some of it gets chopped down in the Midlands into wipes for car factories and let's invoke another marvellous word which is shoddy Yes, shoddy. And so all of these people standing up, they're pulling out the designers, they're pulling out the things and Oxfam does sell them on its website. So you can go online and look at their shop and they have volunteers that come in. And if you look on their website, so obviously the fashion show is the creme de la creme. The big problem they have is secondhand wedding dresses. They are literally overloaded everyone wants a new wedding dress psychologically i understand that but there were hundreds of them there i'm not joking and so they're dyeing them for whitby goth week they're trying to get brides you know if you don't want to be a bridezilla you can go in and spend a very happy You're afternoon my mind. it's i was like whitby goth week my office manager was like i've already bought it i was like come on you have to get a wedding dress from oxfam just get me again quid. Yeah. yeah exactly but so um I mentioned that secondhand September and we also spoke before about how we've, um, you're on a shopping diet, I'm calling mine an experimental detox. Mm. But secondhand is obviously one of the ways that we can make fashion more sustainable. But coming back to the report, I think the most groundbreaking suggestion, and I should add that all 18 recommendations were rejected by the government, one of the most inspiring ideas was this idea of a one pence tax on each garment can you talk us through that we got um waste and resources action plan which is a big charity that is used to be government funded they pretty much had their funding cut to the bone and now it needs to be funded by the industry and they have a sustainable clothing action plan and what they said was you know we've only got like 10 or 12 retailers sort of mainstream high street retailers signed up to this And, you know, to reduce our carbon, water and waste footprint and the waste, we're missing all the targets. We've done good things on water, good things on carbon, waste is impossible. So how do we tackle waste in the system? And we looked to France 
where they have introduced this penny tax and it's a cent, a euro cent, same thing now with the pound tumbling. And they have created about 1,400 jobs in the sorting and, you know, the recycling industry. And they've diverted thousands of tonnes of clothing from landfill, which I think just, you know, if you're going to say zero textile to landfill, which is where we've got to get to sooner rather than later, you've got to create the industries onshore here at home and not just kind of ship it abroad and hope someone else is going to deal with it and again at that Oxfam warehouse I did see you know the warm winter jackets but with a broken zip it's like that's perfect if that's going overseas to a child in the Himalaya and their mum can fit a new zip I'm happy that's wonderful that's going to have a whole new lease of life and I've visited sub-Saharan Africa and seen some you know clothes that have clearly come from us but we wanted to basically make all retailers with an over 36 million pound turnover pay Which this is the tax. same for the Munslavery actually. Yeah, we thought that that was a good standard. It's sort of, you know, they're big businesses, then they can cope with the extra audit requirements. And basically, that would create, it would raise about £35 million a year to divert this clothing away. And I think it would also, you know, we'd be able to do ad campaigns, we'd be able to get people to think more carefully about it. So we want plastics companies to clear up the plastics that's a principle in uk law for the last 20 years polluter pays i mean we don't do it though exactly but we don't do it for clothing we do it for electronics and cars and we've created whole new industries and cleaned up our planet i mean it's interesting that you make the case saying this actually generates and stimulates its own economy green jobs right and yet, as I mentioned, all the recommendations were basically rejected by the government. Why do you think that is? We're in a very curious period in British politics, if I can put it like I that. I wasn't even going to I thought there's not even any point in going into the crazy mayhem that is happening right now. Brexit has <laughs> paralysed everything. The parliament has been hung for the last two years, two and a half years. So there's a kind of policy stasis. That gives us opportunities because it means that campaigning organisations, campaigning MPs can get things through, which wouldn't normally normally be government priorities because there's cross-party consensus and they're not that contentious. So we had the banning of wild animals in circuses bill. That was brought in in July. Of course, Parliament's been prorogued now in uh, September, so the bill falls. So it was just keeping Parliament spinning around. So we have a government that doesn't really like regulation, but wants to be seen as pro-environment. And what they said was in their official response we're going to look at this as part of our waste and resources strategy. And we're going to look at maybe collecting in tyres or clothes or, you know, this, this or that. this five-year window, Yeah, in, by 2023, it's like, well, in the long run, we're all dead. We've got to crack on with this stuff now. They've set an ambitious, world-leading target of net zero carbon emissions by 2050. They've talked the talk. This is how we walk the walk. Where does hope lie? Where are we at with that? Well, it's a, we're coming up to a year since we launched our report. So I'm hoping to have a one year on event in Parliament. We'll get some of the experts in, get some of the companies in and see what's happened. Anecdotally, a lot more companies are signing up to the Sustainable Clothing Action Plan. That's great. That should be their licence to operate. A lot more sustainability lines coming out. But is that just to cover up the fact that the volumes are still massive? How are they going to report their greenhouse gases from next April? That's going to be a massive change because as soon as you measure it and are reporting it into the Treasury, government then has a clear oversight about what you're doing. We've seen the weaknesses in self-reporting in the Modern Slavery Act. So I would like to make sure that those weaknesses are not replicated in this. But over time, change will come. What's your take on the 
movement towards more of these organizations and networks and reporting systems and alliances being set up globally because you've got the UN Sustainable Fashion Alliance but also the G7 thing with the Fashion Pact that we've just seen. That was extraordinary to have that at the G7. I mean it was a big moment really because what it showed was that the work that we'd done as a committee, the clamour globally from people who think well I, I want to be able to do this but I want to trust the brand and I don't know if the brand is trustworthy. In the end, everybody's just marking their own homework unless there are comparable standards. That's awful. They are though. They just say, oh, we're, we're greener than you. I give myself you. an A. Yeah. I've, yes. I give myself an A minus just no. to be humble. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> I'll give myself an A plus just because I've got no cheat. I've got a brass neck. So, you know, they're all saying how great they are and they're all saying, you know, we had Topshop Arcadia in and I was like, so how many collection points do you have? And they're like, oh, just one. It's like you've got 1,400 shops and you've got one, one collection point in Oxford Circus. And, you know, and everyone goes to Oxford Circus because he's a tourist anyway, not everybody, but it's like they're not bringing their clothes in to dump with you there to recycle there. So ask the questions about the supply chain. Carrie and Ursula started it with who made my clothes. What's the footprint of my clothes? Maybe that's the next hashtag. Oh, yeah, Ooh. that's a good one. What's my clothes carbon footprint? Mm. Mary, where does this come from in you? Um, we've talked a bit about being from up north and you are the Labour MP for Wakefield, of course. But was it 2010 when you first were the shadow minister for... Yeah, DEFRA, environment, yeah. So where's eco-warrior Mary come from is my question. Well, you see, I think environmental justice and social justice go hand in hand. And I grew up in Coventry, which is a car-making city, at a time when all the car factories were being shut down. I was about to say was. Yeah, exactly. They still make taxis there now. But, you know, Alvis, the tank makers, Massey Ferguson tractors, all closed around my ears as a teenager. So that's where I got my sort of political fire from. And we never had a car. And it's difficult if everybody works in a car factory, all the men working in car factories, they shut down and you don't have a car. And so we didn't have very much money. And so I just remember getting a bike when I was seven years old. And, and you thinking, still cycle. This is the best thing in my life. I love this bike. And over time, as I went to university, it's like, oh, suddenly it's not about not having a car. And this is just the way to get to school and the way to get out and about in the evening to see your friends. This is cool and so I've cycled wherever I've lived not Rome admittedly that's a step too far but Brussels Sri Lanka Colombo when I lived there for three months and I've always just been like this is what people who don't have cars do and this is what the poor do this is what the healthy do and actually if cycling was a pill everyone would be on it you'd be going to GP saying I need to be on it it reduces your blood pressure it's great for your mental health great for your cardiovascular um, and it's just you're out in the daylight for an hour a day cycling into parliament cycling home from parliament it's just a tonic when I was not on a bike but in an uber <laughs> on the way somewhere this morning I found that you had a new podcast episode dropped it's called Emergency on Planet Earth. It's a series, I think it's like, you've done six episodes now, have you? That's right. Um, but this latest one is about planetary health. Mm. And I want to just finish up talking on that, but I'm glad that you mentioned the cycling because there's a bit in there where you say there is some, I didn't write it down, so it's off the top of my head, I could be wrong, but correct me. There is a reduction in the breast cancer likelihood in cyclists by something like, was it 20%? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a Danish study. So, so basically you cycle, you're more healthy. 
basically you reduce your risk of cancer you reduce your risk of cancer coming back it doesn't hurt your joints it's not like jogging oh which I have to say is not I'm not a huge fan of it although running for the division bells to get over and vote in the commons is my out of my way people in your so, pink suit yeah 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 in my pink suit yeah always wear the trainers now but when you I, say on the podcast if people could only understand that there's an economic benefit in funding more healthy cities in funding ways that people can be encouraged to cycle more because it's not just about having a more livable city it's actually about saying we're going to reduce pressure on the health service we're going to reduce pollution we're going to make people healthier and if people eat less meat and dairy then they're going to lose weight as well so all of these things it's about the co-benefits we only have one planet it's our only home and we rely on it it's our life support system and the huge changes that it's going through as a result of our activities mean it's heating up and the water the oceans and the land are all under massive amounts of stress for us what we want to do is avoid heating it so much that we end up with those systems collapsing and we're in a rich country so if the cost of food goes up by 30 percent, that will hit the poorest people in our countries but it will hit the poorest people in the world catastrophically and so this is about an expression of solidarity social solidarity with people that you'll never know and never meet but it's also about saying if you have a city where people can walk and cycle easily what does that do for health what does that do for pollution what does that do for reduction of noise and stress and blood pressure reduction if you have two days a week where there's no meat on the menu what does that do for blood pressure what does that do for health so it's saying healthy planet healthy people and that's really got to be everyone's goal so eco stuff often seen as a bit of a hair shirt giving up renouncing living in a cave eating grass drinking water there's no need for that we have wonderful inventions you know i'm never going to stop drinking wine i'm never going to stop drinking beer i'm probably not going to stop eating meat but i am significantly reducing it and eating and drinking and being in the world a little bit more mindfully and just one of my big sort of victories when i was you asked about shadow secretary of state for environment David Cameron came in talking a good talk. He kept saying, we're going to be the greenest government ever. And then within six months, he was trying to sell off England's forests and sort of leading the campaign that led to the first government U-turn that said, we're not going to allow you to sell something that belongs to us. Working with everyone from the British Horse Society to the Friends of Chopwell Woods up outside, up in the northeast. You know, this incredible collaboration of people. I realised... Everybody lives in an environment. You have it as soon as you step outside your front door and people treasure their green spaces, their woodlands, their canals, their rivers, their wild moors. Their birds in the garden. I just was at a friend's house and I stopped talking to her because I was like, I just saw a little bird. It makes you delighted. It is. You know, the squirrel comes and and, uh, the wood pigeon comes and the foxes are out fighting in the street at night. These are the things that connect us, however tangentially, to our natural roots and we don't want to lose those connections okay let's just finish up on sure. the fact that i'm very lucky that we had this appointment in the diary for a while yeah. but i wasn't aware that today is the day that the environmental audit committee has just launched a new report and this one is called our planet our health and it looks into all the things you've just been talking about but the beginning sentence is everything we do to the planet we do to ourselves Yeah, I suppose for me, that's a phrase that I picked up from somebody. I'm always looking for the poetry in our evidence. And we had some wonderful experts that come and talk to us. We had Matt Shardlow from Bug Life and he said extinction. He's a 
guy called Matt Shardlow, and he's an absolute... But what's Bug Life? Bug Life. So Bug Life is the tiny but wonderful charity you need to talk to him he's an he's, he's epic he runs the kind of it's the invertebrates charity so it's butterflies bees all sorts of insects and moths and he's the god of insects and he was talking about all sorts of different fragile and precious little butterflies that have gone extinct and he described how they as we gradually eat up their habitat by building on it and growing food on it. This little butterfly, this pale blue butterfly, its range got smaller and smaller and it just shrank because it didn't need the calories to get from A to B because there was no B. We're taking away their habitats and then they go extinct. And he said extinction comes on silent wings for little things. You know, silent wings for little things. And it's like, yeah, my God, you know, he's immersed in this. And that's why I did the podcast because... The hundreds of pages of evidence on a website and the hours of sitting in a meeting and just trying to sift it all down and get people to listen to these brilliant minds and these passionate people that I have the privilege to invite in and just explain it to me really slowly without the maths. You know, how many swimming pools is that of ice melting each year when Greenland's ice sheet goes? You know, just getting them to put it into layman's terms and trying to use the committee as a way to kind of educate people is a bit techy it is a bit gritty but people don't want you know there's lots of places where they can go and get quick fixes and listen to fun stuff this is deep thought and care for the future and so that was what I was trying to do with the podcast so planetary health is basically saying our biodiversity is in collapse what does that mean it says what do we need to do to build cities that are good for the future and what about our food system so we did cities food and bugs and we kind of put them all together I was talking to a radio station this morning and they said oh well, we'll be able to grow wine we're gonna have loads of food it's gonna be fine I was like what well, because not- it gets warmer yeah as it gets warmer here and I said look we're not gonna have any water you know forget the grapes there's gonna be no irrigation you know it's parts of the south east of this country i know in australia you've had tremendous fires huge droughts massive problems with your farmers well they're talking about having to move the food belt exactly that's not something to be done lightly no what happens to the towns you've left behind exactly so this is the deindustrialization of your nation's bread basket and horticultural basket what happens when the water runs out in the farming belt of australia this is what's happening profound there's people with no water in their taps And that's happening right now. And yet we still have a government that denies climate change. Absolutely terrible. But you also have houses that don't collect the water. So I was on an island with no water supply in the summer. I went because there were no cars. It's called Silba in Croatia. And it was in the Mediterranean. It was glorious. Four miles wide, half a mile long. And basically everybody has a cistern. When you don't have water, you collect it. And the gutter in the old days, I think, would run into the kitchen sink. So when it rained, they just, you know, hose it off the roof and there it'd be. It'd be marvellous they'd have water for a few days all of that was filtered into a cistern pumped into the shower into the taps into the washing machine and then we just bought our own drinking water every day so I like that we're ending on solutions because I always try to make sure that this isn't too much of a gloomy message because we need to do stuff I mean the work that you do at the EAC is all about like what could we actually do so from the information that you've collected from the report what are a couple of the exciting things that could be done to respond to some of this 
frightening stuff around those three pillars. Well, I think consumers are voting with their feet, they're voting with their pockets, and they're asking more questions. And I think an educated shopper is, um, you know, an ethically conscious shopper. And I think that's important. So people are asking brands the right questions. The second thing is, we hope for this EPR, I think the extended polluter pays principle to come in i'd like to see much more emphasis putting on repair reuse and recycling so reducing the vat on that down to five percent as sweden has done repair i think is a really important part i'd like to see more of these skills taught in schools there's a disconnect between young women who are taught that they have to look a particular way take a selfie and then get rid of the dress you can only be seen in it once and for me it's mentally very damaging to be told that you're only as good as your last photo and if you've knitted something or created something or made a skirt my god there's no way you're going to wear it once if you're, you're going to wear your, it again you're sewn on your buttons yeah exactly you sewn on the labels that's going to get you to the route of fifth form my girl so then um, just, just to finish then what would you say about this later so the our planet our health report what are some of the recommendations and where do some of the solutions oh lie? okay well we basically said that the government needs to set up a national food council So it's going to publish its food strategy by the end of this year. We clearly have a big risk of a shock to our food supply from Brexit. 40% of our fruit and veg comes from two countries, Netherlands and Spain. If the lorries stop, we are not going to have tomatoes forget the cucumbers, forget the strawberries. So we think that we need to bring the farming community and the growing community together with the public health community. Public health rightly is focused on obesity, mental health, smoking, stress. That's fine, but they're not looking to the future when the Zika virus may appear in the United Kingdom, where Lyme disease is already appearing in ticks and people are not getting diagnosed properly at their doctors. Where food may have lower nutrient content because of... extra carbon yeah so that's less of a worry I was very worried about that to begin with but that's basically you would end up with bigger crops so the nutritional content would be less because they've grown faster because there's more carbon so it's a kind of paradoxical thing it is a problem for countries where people don't have enough iron and zinc and it's potentially a problem for men, you know women of childbearing age and children but for our country because our diets are quite varied it shouldn't be a problem but as with all these things there is always a risk to the poor that they're on the front line they can't afford that rich and varied diet they don't have access to that fresh fruit and veg and so that's where the risks come in we've seen with zika virus you know it was very complacent with public health they said oh well we'll have a vaccine for zika virus by then it's like yeah we've had a vaccine for measles for 60 years but we're still only at like 90% of the population being vaccinated and that can kill you. So this idea that somehow medicine and will magic it all better, we do need to be planning for this, educating people about it. And that's how we create resilience. For me, if we educate people about what needs to be done and we educate the government about what needs to be done, then when the bad stuff happens, when the floods hit, when there's a food shock, we can go back and say, this is what we told you needed to happen. And a resilient country is a country that sticks together, a country that remains generous and outward looking, and a country that in another country's hour of need is able to offer help and support and doesn't turn in on itself. And I hope that's what Britain's going to stay. Mary Cray, you genuinely are a rock star for sustainability in Parliament. It's just the genes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the Thanks. time. Thanks. That is a pleasure. Oh, it's getting hard. My parents feel that I'm defeated.
thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis. So I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell you where, okay, I won't admit that I am blind. My friends all feel that I'm carrying a steel. I tell them all that they are wrong. Because I love you, because I love you. Because I love you Because I love you